Hello, this is Wendy Bussey, and today we'll be mapping conditioned food hypersensitivity on the 15-minute matrix. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix Special Nutrition Therapy Series, where we're going to dive into the approaches, practices, dietary theories, and healing foods that have been used in the most successful practices around the globe and throughout history. I'm Andrea Nakayama, functional medicine nutritionist and your host. The 15-Minute Matrix is the podcast that brings you bite-sized insights and lessons, which highlight the most important tool in functional medicine and functional nutrition, and that's the functional matrix. The functional nutrition matrix reminds us of three very important factors in clinical care. Everything is connected, we are all unique, and all things matter. Be sure to head over to this episode's show notes at 15minutematrix.com if you'd like to see today's topic mapped on a downloadable matrix to remind you of these critical aspects of care. Today on the 15-Minute Matrix, I'll be speaking with Wendy Bussey. Wendy Bussey is a registered dietitian and a nationally recognized food hypersensitivity expert. Her focus is helping clients make peace with food and expand their diet. Currently, she is the director of FAST, Food Avoidance and Sensitivity Trap Freedom Program. This conversation is so important, so perk up your ears and let's get started. Wendy, welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. I'm so glad to have you here. Thanks. I'm glad to be here as well. So I know our listeners are familiar with food allergies, food sensitivities, food intolerances, but can you start us off by defining food hypersensitivity? Food hypersensitivity is more the medical term for the overview of all sensitivities. So whether it be a food allergy, which involves the immune system or a food intolerance that does not, food hypersensitivity is that um, umbrella term. I got it. And so when we think about that umbrella term, and then we go into this realm of conditioned food hypersensitivity, are we still talking about a medical situation? Or are we talking about a psychological situation? Or is it both? Well, I would say it's both. I, I don't think there's really, like, we can't really separate mind and body. Mm, so we sure. can't separate those two out. So it is conditioned food hypersensitivities produce physical symptoms, but rather than being initiated by a physically driven mechanism, it's initiated by the limbic system perceiving food as a threat and then overreacting to that food. You have this beautiful fast model we'll link to in the show notes, but it really helps us understand the circular momentum. And I know in our practice, Wendy, we see what we call the big bigs. So people who have big health issues and they've made big efforts and oftentimes they come to us with all these diagnoses or even a lack of diagnoses, but a lot of symptoms and they've limited their foods to three things. They've taken food out and we're, we're actually having to remind them that their body can't do what's necessary in healing without the nutrient needs. So can you walk us through that 
model, starting with those unexplained symptoms that more and more people are experiencing these days? Right. So a lot of times people, as you say, they're experiencing symptoms. There isn't a medical explanation for it. And that creates a lot of worry. Mm -hmm. They then go to do research. And in that research, they're looking for exact answers to explain why they're having the symptoms they are, but they don't find those answers. Instead, they find a lot of contradicting theories, and that creates then more anxiety and more just a feeling of vulnerability and uncertainty, which then feeds into the worry. So then we get sort of almost a mini cycle. I wish I had the the, the cycle to point to, but we get almost a mini cycle. But in that journey, often the client is then exposed to fearful food messages. So as I say, it's a vicious cycle. And often on round two of research, they're no longer just looking for why am I having these symptoms? They're looking for information about the dangers of food. So then it creates then uh, worry, starting the worry about food specifically. And also, uh, I don't necessarily have, <laughs> if anybody has a better term for it, but poor health self-perception. Right, right. Where you can say like all of the diagnoses. So they've They've come to a belief that their body is diseased, and as a result, they are not tolerating food. All of that worry often then leads to food avoidance. And then over time, that creates a perception and a, a an association in the brain between, particularly the limbic system, between symptoms and food. So then food becomes a danger cue. So interesting to think about and so important, Wendy. I'm thinking a number of things, and I'm scribbling notes furiously because I just want to commend you for this model and for pointing this out because I think it's often overlooked when we're working with people who are in this cycle that they're actually getting into this sympathetic place where they're searching and looking. And I often find even with friends when they're looking to address something, I'm having to say, can you please get off the internet? Like you're not working with a clinician. Can you please stop self-diagnosing? Because we actually start to shift a number of things. We invite deficiencies when we're removing foods. And I also have this same fear that people start taking supplements based on their research and they don't know if their body needs that supplement. They're taking it based on a symptom. And so there's this uh, quest for the quick fix based on a symptom versus the deeper dive into the physical physiological reasons for that symptom. Right, exactly. We have people that in the sympathetic state where they're striving, looking, searching, and then applying these things that then bring them more into a sympathetic place because their entire nervous system is on high alert. Exactly. Yeah. So we often talk about, I talk about with clients about the limbic system then becomes hypervigilant. And then in that state, it can overreact. And in that state is like, that's not a healing state. We know from what the limbic system can do that that is no place for the body to invite healing. Can you talk a little bit more about that limbic system overreaction? Normally when food, thinking about that association, so the, the symptom food association, I mean, ideally our association with food is is nourishing our body and is, is pleasure, is is our culture, is there's a positive association. But when we have this food becomes this danger cue, then the limbic system, almost like, you know, you think of an animal looking around every corner for the tiger. Right. It's almost like the limbic system is looking around every corner for another food that may be causing symptoms. And that in itself 
ends up causing symptoms. So when the limbic system overreacts, and then we go into fight, flight, or freeze, <laughs> my tongue always swiss out <laughs> over those, then that can create a multitude of different symptoms. And often a client then will interpret that those symptoms as a physically driven food sensitivity reaction. It is a food sensitivity, but it's not driven physically. It is driven by a limbic system overreaction. So interesting. Again, as you said, we can't separate the mind from the body and there's so much happening, especially with the mind and the gut. Are gut symptoms one of the primary triggers that leads a client or patient down this road? Yes, I would say, I would, you know, of all if unexplained symptoms, probably digestive symptoms are the most common. You know, thinking too of us being like all of us pretty well nowadays live in this, this um, limbic system overreaction. And of course, our guts do not work well, we're not in rest and digest. And so it's no wonder why so many of us have such significant digestive problems. How would you talk to coaches and clinicians about identifying somebody who's in this hypersensitive state? So there isn't an absolute yes, no, black and white indicator, but a, but three red flags would be someone that is doing a lot of research, talking about food a lot, talking about the dangers of food, different restriction lists. So low histamine, low salicylate, low oxalate, low lectin. I mean, I could go on for an hour right there. So they're talking, they're asking questions about that. So that would so that would be um, a risk factor. Their sensitivities seem are increasing over time and the restrictions are increasing over time would be another big red flag and um those are probably the the two the two biggest red flags to be looking for with clients and also another would be that if they and this is this is a hard one because i often find in my work with clients they don't identify this until they've done a little bit of work but they feel unwell just thinking about a food looking at the food, talking about the food, or seeing the food. And they start to feel unwell already. It's so interesting because thinking about food is supposed to stimulate our secretions that helps us to digest those foods. So if we're thinking about food and we put the brakes on, then we're, like you said, going to initiate more problems digesting the food because the food's just a difficulty in the body. Exactly. So that three, those three red flags, I love that. That really helps us come into some practical way of looking for, is this what's going on here? You said if a client has done a little bit of work, can we talk about what that work is like to reframe this situation and start to work through more healing protocols with a client or patient? So my tips, and I do have a, on my my website, we have an article on calming the over the limbic system overreactions. So the two biggest tips, the, the first is very simple, but really hard to put into practice and is to, as you had said, you'd said with your friends, try not to do as much research mm-hmm. and then realize that almost everything you have ever read about the dangers of food is a theory. And some might be valid. There might be some validity to some of the theories, but it is overblown. So realizing that that, that and, and trying to stay off the internet, because this then reduces your, the, your client's exposure to the fearful food messages that are really driving this vicious, devastating cycle. And the second tip is for meal planning. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times clients are 
what should I eat? Should I eat carrots? Oh, I think I think carrots bothered me last time. Oh, it's high in beta carotene. Is beta carotene bad? Maybe beta beta carotene is good. I don't know. So you know this constant rumination and thinking about food and what they should be eating. And so if a client then can make a meal plan, now it might not be they'll say I want to make this 100% safe meal plan that I know it's safe. Well, at this point we don't have a crystal ball. We we don't know what a safe meal plan is for you. But just simply making a decision that this is safe for a period of time, the next three weeks, this is what I'm going to eat. And then the key is not second guessing it. So then when the worry comes up during that three weeks, say, no, I'm not worrying. I'm taking a break from worrying. And after the three weeks, then come back and reevaluate and adjust the meal plan. And just that reduction in thinking and stress and worry about food really helps the limbic system to calm down. Plus all the other great benefits of, of meal planning just to save time, et cetera, that all of us really should be doing, even if we don't have food sensitivities. Yeah, there's a number of things that you said that I really loved. First of all, that you talked about the dietary information we find on the internet as theory. I think this is where a lot of people make mistakes and then start working through biases that they believe in for some reason. Either it's worked for them or they saw it work for a family member or a friend. And so they start hanging some hook on what that theory can do for them because mm -hmm. it's supposed to do something for them. A low histamine diet as you said, a low salicylate diet, whatever it is, this really um, oxalates get so big, ketogenic, right? We don't realize that food is about symbiosis. It's where mm -hmm. the food meets the physiology. And so we as practitioners have to help clients and patients get out of the theory and back into their bodies and the ability to truly listen. One of the things that I do with some of these clients or I've done in the past is create a yes, no, maybe wish list. Because mm -hmm. I find when we document it, like they know these foods work for them. That's a place mm -hmm. where we could start and build on. We then explore the nose. And before mm -hmm. I develop trust, I might stay away from the nose, mm -hmm. but we may play a little bit in the maybes and in the wish lists and then bring those foods in. And then as we start to rebuild some trust with the body and some trust in the therapeutic partnership, we can start to address some of the no's. Is, does, is that a practice that rings true for you? Absolutely. I actually have a worksheet that people go through and they will with each food select and then it turns it green Green, light green, it's just a bit more detailed, but this right, is what I had. Yeah. So green, light green, um, red, light red, and gray. Gray is, I don't care, I don't like the food anyways. Mm -hmm. And exactly, so then we often start with the light red foods. Got it, it's beautiful. And when we think about this through a lens of a therapeutic partnership, one of, I like to think of it as, as functional empathy, right? Where do we really meet somebody where they are? One of the other things you were speaking about is this road that somebody can be on alone. And I like to tell this kind of client, you know, you don't have, you're not in this alone anymore. You have another set of eyes on this with you. How do you broach that with clients who are deep down this trap? I think too, what you're speaking of is normalizing the client's experience. And one of the advantages that myself and, and the coaches that work with me have is that we see this, this is our client population. So we can say, you know, often clients will say, I'm sure you've never spoken with somebody that is their diet is restricted as, right. as mine is. And I'm like, uh, yeah, every single day. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it's amazing that, that people are 
really? Like there's other people like me. And that, that can be a really a light bulb moment to, mm. to normalize. And, and the coaches that I work with are, they're all registered dietitians, but they also have food sensitivity experience themselves. Mm-hmm. And so that really increases the, they're empathetic people to begin with, right, right. <laughs> but, but having the experience themselves really increases their empathy. I love that. This is such an important topic, Wendy. I'm so grateful that we were able to speak about it. We will link to all your resources that you mentioned in the show notes. Is there anything else that you would love to share with coaches and clinicians about conditioned food hypersensitivity that you wish you could shout from the top of a rooftop? I would say just being mindful. Like if you're talking with a client, just be very mindful of the the recommendations that you're making. So many clinicians will just say, oh, go follow a low FODMAP diet, right. go follow this. If, if you're going to give dietary like um, suggestions to restrict diet, first of all, ask the client what they're currently eating. If they are eating very little or they have developed food fear, additional negative information about food is not appropriate. And be there to support them through the process. A restricted diet has, can have devastating effects on people's mental health. And I have an infographic on my website about that. So it's really important not just to say go follow the diet, but be there, follow up with them to see how it is affecting their mental health, their physical health, everything. Brilliant. Wendy, thank you so much. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. The 15 Minute Matrix is brought to you by me, Andrea Nakayama, and the Functional Nutrition Alliance. Check out the latest in functional nutrition at functionalnutritionlab.com forward slash blog. The 15 Minute Matrix is produced, mixed, and edited by Rowan Bradley with production support from Natalie Merrill and the team at the Functional Nutrition Alliance. You can find episodes on all kinds of topics with more incredible guests at our podcast website, 15minutematrix.com. And if you'd like to be notified each time there's a new podcast episode by email, please head over to 15minutematrix.com forward slash notify. Also, we'd love to hear your thoughts, your feedback, and who you'd like to hear next on the podcast. You can email us at ask at 15minutematrix.com.